guys, so this is my first unofficial or official episode of Debunked, and I'm actually super excited, and I'm not sure why, but let's get into it. These episodes are going to be about mysteries or conspiracy theories, and on this podcast, I'm just going to talk about what happened in the certain stories and give you background information and then state my opinion or what I think about it. Um, So the first episode is about Charles Augustus Lindbergh. And I'm not sure why I'm so excited about this case, but I really just am. And I think it's a really sad story, but one that is very important. So let's get into it. (laughs) So Charles Augustus Lindbergh was an American aviator, military officer, author, inventor, and activist. He was born on February 4th, 1902 in Detroit, Michigan. He then moved to Little Falls, Minnesota as a toddler and then ended up moving and spending most of his childhood in Washington, D.C., where his father, also Charles Augustus Lindbergh, was a U.S. congressman. He learned to fly planes in 1922 after he dropped out of college and then joined the United States Army Air Service in 1924, but the Army didn't need him, so he had returned to civilian aviation. He was then an airmail pilot in 1925. So he was flying around and was in the air very often. And he rose to fame at the age of 25 in 1927 when he was the first person to make a nonstop flight from New York City to Paris on his plane Spirit of St. Louis. And this name of his plane was in honor of his financial bankers, as a side note. And for this event, he had won the Orteg Prize, in which he got a reward of $25,000. And that may seem like a lot now, but we also have to keep in mind that money had a very different value in 1927, so it was a lot more then. So he was famous, and he had money. On May 29, 1929, Charles Augustus Lindbergh married Anne Morrow Lindbergh. They ended up having six children, but we will touch on that a little bit later. And unfortunately, five years later, on March 1st, 1932, the news hit and we found out that his 20-month-old son was kidnapped, whose name was also Charles Augustus Lindbergh Jr. This event became so famous and was called the Crime of the Century, which is very interesting because it must have been huge, and we're going to talk about that later. Um, the kidnapping took place on the second floor nursery in their home in Hopewell, New Jersey at 9 p.m. And by the time the parents found out and reported to the police, it was already 10 p.m. So they were working quickly. Something interesting to note is that the nurse, Betty Gow, was the one who had found the baby missing and reported it to the parents. Information on Betty would be her real name was Bessie Mwagawai. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that correctly. But she was Scottish, and she was hired due to the mother's long absences, and some say the baby was more attached to Betty than the actual mother. When interviewing suspects for the kidnapping, they interviewed her, but she was proven innocent. A side note to add to this awful story is that all of this happened during the years leading up to World War II, and people had thought that Charles Lindbergh was a Nazi sympathizer, so living in America and being known as someone who might be working at the Nazis is gonna cause conflicts. But we don't really know if that's what was really going on, so we can't think of that as a for sure statement. Anyways, after doing an extensive search of the room, they found a few interesting things. 
The first was they found mud traces on the floor of the nursery, footprints underneath the nursery window, and two sections that had of the ladder that had been used to get to the second floor were found. And that means that they had been split or broken off, which means the ladder broke going up or down. But there weren't any bloodstains or fingerprints to be found anywhere, which is very interesting to me. People of the household and estate were questioned, and the Lindberghs asked their friends to reach out and to communicate with people to see if they could find anything. Both Lindberghs and their friends tried many different methods, but unfortunately, none worked. After the baby was kidnapped, Lindbergh and his wife had discovered ransom notes on the nursery window demanding $50,000, and a few days later, on March 6, 1932, the ransom note was raised to $75,000. Now, of course, the Lindberghs wanted their son back, and they were so distraught, so they paid. After, but they get to the paying through Dr. Condon. We'll get to that a little bit later. So, the baby's sleeping suit was discovered on March 16th by Dr. Condon, along with another note. And another note was received by Dr. Condon on March 21st, and it had said that this kidnapping had been planned for a year. Now, to me, this is creepy. The fact that this guy had been watching this baby in the Lindbergh family for a year, and the baby was 20 months. A year ago, the baby would have had to be 8 months when this guy first started stalking them. And, I mean, I don't know about you, but that makes me want to hide for the rest of my life. I mean, that's just really creepy. Anyways, back to the story. On April 1st, 1932, another ransom note demanded $100,000 for the following night to meet and get the baby. And on another note, there was instructions on where Dr. Condon was supposed to go. And then the ransom was reduced to $50,000. So, Dr. Condon was someone that was working closely with the Lindberghs, and it would make sense for him to go and not the Lindberghs because, you know, complications, whatever, we didn't want to lose another Lindbergh. So, Dr. Condon gave the stranger the money, and the stranger went by the name of John. John gave Dr. Condon another note saying, oh, you're going to find the baby on this boat named Nellie near Martha's Vineyard in Massachusetts. But unfortunately, excuse me, unfortunately, we never end up finding the boat or the baby, which is so sad that they lost two things for the price of one and didn't get anything in return. The body of the baby was accidentally found on May 12th, 1932, and it was found by a William Allen, who was a truck driver, and the driver had found the baby four miles away from the Lindbergh home in New Jersey, and the investigators determined that the child was partially buried, but badly decomposed. They came to the conclusion that the baby had been dead for two months. They also noticed that the head was crushed and there was a hole in the skull, and some body members were missing. The body was identified to be the Charles Augustus Lindenberg, Lindbergh Jr., and eventually was cremated at Trenton, New Jersey on May 13, 1932. As we know before, the body had been dead for two months, and the coroner proved this and also told us that the baby died because of a blow to the head or blunt force trauma. The investigation went on for two years, from 1932 to 1934, and the Attorney General and FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover contacted the New Jersey State Police and told them that he was going to bring in any and all responsible parties for the kidnapping. 
But what I think is most interesting about the whole investigation is on is on June 10, excuse me, 1932, Violet Sharp, who was a waitress in the home of the Lindenbergs, Lindbergs committed suicide by swallowing poison when she was asked to be re-questioned. She had already been under investigation by the authorities, but they wanted to recheck her story, and so when they asked to question her again, she ran up to her room, drank poison, and died. For the longest time, I thought, you know, she must have had the biggest tie to the investigation, and she definitely had something to do with the case. But on March 1st, 1932, they carefully checked her story, and it was certain that she had no connection at all to the abduction. Like I said before, this case was the crime of the century. And with this, there were so many people involved. We had President Franklin D. Roosevelt, okay, the President of the United States, having meetings with directors of the investigation. He also invited other generals and attorneys to come in and state their opinions so they could work together and form more opinions and theories on the case. So this was a big deal and lots of people were involved. And not only was it just the New Jersey Department of Police involved, but all of the New York Police Department and Washington, D.C. were involved. And I think that's amazing because nowadays, if something like this were to happen, we would not have three counties or states worth of police groups involved. So I think that was very interesting that automatically three people, three groups of people were like, we're, we're going to help out. So since the case went on for two years, many people pretended like they had abducted the baby or new information so they could get money. Like I said before, the Lindberghs did have money. They were rich. So an example of this was the story of Gaston B. Means telling an Evelyn Walsh McLean that he knew who had kidnapped the baby and if she could give him $100,000, he could secure a connection and bring the baby back. And this was on March 14, 1932. One month later, on April 17, 1932, Miss McLean had been calling him, and she realized this was fake, and she had asked for her money back, and when he didn't give it back, she got the FBI involved, which they later found out that this was a fraudulent attempt, and he was sentenced to prison. So these people think they can mess around and try to get money so that kind of got in the way of the investigation as well when you have all these people coming up and saying oh yeah like I know who it is just give me the money and I'll, I'll get it for you I, I can help this out and you know I'm sure people weren't totally no we can't trust you no we can't trust you I mean they probably were like Gil let's see what this guy has to say and then they did and then they realized they wasted their time so it was unfortunate and People weren't nice, and they got in the way. So anyways, back to the story. Everyone who was in charge of the investigation did as much as they could. They looked at boats that were registered in the name of Nellie. They asked cemetery employees for the records of people that were employed in various cemeteries in sections near Hopewell, New Jersey. And they took hundreds of photographs and descriptive data of known criminals that could help identify this mysterious John who had picked up the ransom money in the beginning. A big, I don't want to say big break in the case, but something that they did that helped them out later on, but was on May 2nd, 1933, when the Federal Reserve Bank of New York discovered 296 $10 gold certificates, one $20 gold certificate, and all the Lindbergh ransom notes. Once these were discovered, they were immediately examined and an address was found. The name? 
and address was J.J. Faulkner of 537 West 149th Street. Unfortunately, this place was never located. So they were kind of back to square one, but they had all these ransom notes and money that the person had paid in. Since the notes they had were useful, they examined the handwriting and decided that all of the notes were written by the same person. They also deciphered that the writing was from a German nationality, but this person had had spent some time in America. And then Dr. Condon, with the writing, had sat down and described John as Scandinavian and believed that he could identify this John if he ever had seen him again. The FBI called an artist so they could make... They, excuse me, they could make Dr. Condon remember what John looked like and draw him out so they could get a running sketch going. Along with the photograph, the FBI also had Dr. Condon write up a transcript of all the conversations that he had with John on March 2nd and April 2nd of 1932. And you're probably thinking, like, what is that going to do? Why would you want to record all these conversations? You're wasting your time. Well, actually, I also thought that as well. But what's interesting is that these conversations that he had, writing them down could determine the personality or even nationality, and they could decipher some clues from that. So I thought that was pretty cool. And, okay, another attempt to secure the final suspect is focusing on the ladder that was used to get into the second floor nursery. The police realized that it was poorly built and investigated for fingerprints and examined the type of wood that was used. Parts of the ladder had been analyzed and the type of wood had been discovered by an Arthur Kohler. Kohler, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing his last name correctly. But he worked with the Forest Service in 1933. And on September 8th, 1930, about 1.20 p.m. in the afternoon, another gold certificate had been found. And so the bank had contacted the police and they said that they had secured a license number from this gold certificate, which was issued to Bruno Richard Hompton, who lived on 1279 East 222nd Street, Bronx, New York. So what do you think they're going to do with this information? They're going to go to his house. So they went to his house and they watched very closely every day. And they eventually, I guess, brought Dr. Condon to the house or took pictures and showed Dr. Condon. And Dr. Condon said that he matched the description of John. And I don't know how this automatically he'd like matches the description of John because this case had been going on for two years. I'm sure people were getting tired of it. They just wanted someone to blame or maybe it was him. But the ransom money that Dr. Condon gave this John guy was at night in the woods in the forested area. So it would be hard to see. So, I mean, did he match the picture that they drew? I don't know. I have not seen the picture, but I guess Dr. Condon said he matched it. So they went with that. Then after this, they investigated him more and they figured out that he was a German carpenter who had been living in the country for 11 years. They then searched his house and found objects that had been bought with the money that he had received from the Lindberghs with the ransom. And he also had a Dodge sedan automobile at his house, which was said to have been seen leaving the Lindbergh home the day prior to the kidnapping. That, to me, that evidence with the car is not the most valuable because they never touched on that in any of the 
articles with reading and I just I don't know there was a lot of sedan dodge dodge sedan automobiles and if they had a license plate I think it would be a little bit of a different story but anyways let's just continue on um Hotman was flown to Washington DC and his handwriting was analyzed and they realized that his handwriting in the ransom note was very similar as they quoted it was a striking resemblance so a little background for you on this Hauptmann guy. He was 35 years old and was a native of Saxony, Germany, and he did have a criminal record for robbery, robbery, and he had spent time in prison. He came to America illegally and then was deported on June 13, 1923. He had tried again and it didn't work, and then he tried one more time and it did work, and this was November of 1923. And then on October 10, 1925, he married and Anna Schofler, who was a New York City waitress, and they had a kid named Manfred. Manfred, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that correctly, in 1933. So this guy, Hauptmann, doesn't he sound guilty to you? Doesn't he sound like he fits this whole profile? He's a perfect match with the, what the police was thinking. Yeah, well, let's see about that. He was inducted into the Supreme Court on September 26, 1934, and his trial had lasted for five weeks. They had figured out that the tool marks on the ladder matched the tools that he owned in his toolbox or in his house. The wood in the ladder was found to match the wood that was used in his attic flooring. And they also found Dr. Condon's telephone number and address written on a doorframe inside a closet in his house. Now, I think that is so creepy. I mean, why would you have Dr. Condon's phone number? The Lindberghs didn't start working with him until after the baby was kidnapped. So this guy knew who he was or could have written it down after. But the fact that the address and the phone number and who he was was written down might mean that this guy, Hompton, was going to visit him or call him or threaten him. or I don't, I don't even want to think about what could have happened. So anyways, on forever, for, excuse me, February 13th, 1935, the jury returned the verdict and he was guilty of murder in the first degree and he was electrocuted on the electric chair on April 3rd, 1936 at 8.47 p.m. That's the case. That's the story. It seems a little short, but that, that's all there is to it. Now, there are a few things that I've never understood about this case and I have so many questions. And the first one was, what motive did the Hauptman have when kidnapping the baby? Like, why did he do it? Why did he want to do it? Why did he? Like, what, what did he have against this family? I mean, like, they seem like nice people. I don't know what, you know. But they had no connection. They lived in two different states. And, I mean, a theory that, like, I kind of read about and came up with is that all the conspiracy that Charles Lindbergh, the father, was supporting Nazi Germany and Bruno was from Ger- Germany. Like, shouldn't they be on the same side? Like, maybe that's a connection. Like, shouldn't they be supporting each other instead? But there are other theories or, you know, facts that Charles Lindbergh wasn't really loyal to Nazi Germany and maybe that this was his payback. But in my opinion, this is a huge payback. This is not like, oh, I'm going to steal your car for a day or pop your tires. No, this is I'm going to take your kid and steal your money and then say I'm innocent like this is not like fair I mean maybe they didn't really went go by fairness but I don't know I think this is like really big there's other theories 
and if I haven't mentioned, we're getting into the theories part of it, but there's other theories that the baby died the night he was kidnapped when the ladder broke and the weight of whoever was kidnapping him crushed the baby, which would explain the blunt force trauma to the head. And this scenario makes perfect sense, but is it true? Like, this could have happened. I mean, there's no... There's nothing we read about that, like, said the baby lived for the next few weeks. No, like, this could this could be a scenario that an extra piece of information, but we don't know if it's true or not. And then we have Mrs. Violet Sharp, like I had mentioned earlier, who worked in the house and committed suicide when they asked her questions for the second time. Now, if that doesn't scream suspicion or red flags, then I don't know what does. She might have not been directly involved with the kidnapping, and she might have not given the baby to the kidnapper, but for sure, she could have seen something or known something, and killing herself shows that. Like, she knew something. She is guilty of something, and I don't know, like, no one just kills themselves to, like, avoid the investigation. Like, there was something she knew. There was something there, and if I could go to heaven or go back in time, I would make sure this girl, I don't know, I would literally ask her so many questions and make sure she doesn't know anything. Another thing to point out that I was like, okay, what? That does not make sense. Was that the Lindberghs were not poor. They had money. And, like, they left the window open when in the baby's room. And, you know, leaving a window open, maybe the baby gets cold. You know, let me just pop open the window for some air to come in. No. During this time, the 1920s, AC had been invented. It was a thing. It was there. And even if it was expensive, the Lindberghs had the money to afford it and pay for it. And if the baby, if it was hot in the room, they could just flip the switch on or flip the switch off. They were not poor. They had the money to afford that. So the fact that the window was left open was a little suspicious for me. I kind of was like, well, why would that be that way? Kind of going off the thing that the Lindberghs were not poor and they had money. This guy was a carpenter and carpenters don't really make a lot of money. So maybe he could have made been motivated by greed and wanted money, but... I don't know. I, I don't know. That could be it, but that doesn't seem as likely as a situation. So another thing to note is that the Lindberghs had so many different types of people working in their house. They had a cook, they had a cleaner, they had a waitress, they had a nanny. They literally had a worker for everything. So did they end up interviewing all of the people who worked in their house? Because if they did, there was a lot of people that they had to interview. There was a lot of people that were working on the house, even if it was just people that would come in once a month, like to check on the yard or to check on the electrical pipes or something. I don't know. But, you know, even with all these people working in the house at one time, someone had to see something or check on the baby or like see this ladder going up. And I don't know, like nine o'clock, it depends on may like it doesn't it get it's like lighter outside or is that the wrong one the wrong season i'm not sure but someone had to see something with all of these people working and another one is like at nine o'clock at night this baby should be sleeping and everyone knows that when a baby is sleeping and you can't always be sitting with it or attending to it and you have other things to do you don't leave a window open or you don't leave a door open 
where you don't leave the crib lock the the thing down because bad things will happen you know the baby will move someone will take the like anything bad could happen and this is a great example of well something bad like this happening another theory that people have is with the investigation expert and his name was dr aristotus mead hudson and he had applied a thin like rare and silver nitrate fingerprint process to the ladder and he didn't find any fingerprints even in places that the maker of the ladder must have touched so him finding this shows like there was no one that touched this but you know they had gloves they had things to cover up their fingerprints and even if the guy I, i'm sure there's a way to remove the fingerprints after you touch it so i mean there's definitely ways to get around this so i mean this is helpful to be like oh bruno didn't touch it or sorry hotman didn't touch it but you know there's many ways to get rid of fingerprints or he could have worn gloves so i don't know that's not really the most valuable counter evidence to the Hopman case for me, but we have, then there's this crazy theory. I mean, the crazy, like, this is one that I'm like, there's, like, why would you do this? This theory that Charles Lindbergh was responsible for the kidnapping. Like, he was the one that did it. And a book by Jim Bombs, which is called Beneath the Water Sycamores, implies that the baby was physically disabled and that Lindbergh arranged the kidnapping as a way to secretly transfer the baby to Germany so that he could be raised there. And for one, I think that's crazy. I mean, some people, right, they are crazy in the world and they might not love their kids as much as others, but there's no way one would go to lengths to arrange a kidnapping for their child. I think that's a bit, I don't know, bizarre. Also, why would he want his baby raised in Germany if it was physically disabled? Like, Germany doesn't have a cure for that. Like, that just doesn't, I don't it just doesn't make sense to me. It's like 2 plus 2 equals 10. It doesn't work. Um, another theory we have is that Lindbergh accidentally killed his son in a prank gone wrong. Well, that's kind of something that doesn't happen because the baby was 20 months old. What kind of pranks would you be doing with a 20-month-old baby? And some say that he accidentally dropped his son out of a window and then covered the crime up by blaming Hotman. But why would you be holding your son out the window to get fresh air? Go outside. I mean, I don't know how people come up with these theories, but then that covering up and blaming Hotman, we have so much circumstantial evidence that the theories, I would say that theory has been debunked by me, but I'm no expert, so. And lastly, the last theory we have is that people say this whole thing was fake. It was a hoax that it was just a way to show how rich people are taking advantage of the public and the less fortunate. And while this statement might be true in some situations, other situations, some other situations, it's not true here. There's circumstantial evidence. Um, How is it fake that his baby went missing and they found the dead body and like... He had this kid. He had six kids. There's way to tell. We have the documents of the baby born. We have the babies being cremated. Like, I don't understand how this was fake. Like, lots of people, three jurisdictions of police groups were involved. Like, they wouldn't trick the world. And especially if it was crime of the century. That That's not, that's not very likely. But anyways, out of all the numerous theories that we have and that exist in the world that I haven't covered. I mean, we'd be here all day if I covered every single one. Probably all year. I'm sure there are millions of more, millions more, and some might make more sense, and they're still being formed today. 
but I definitely think that Bruno Richard Hotman was involved. I can't say that he directly kidnapped the baby and killed him, but I can definitely say he was involved to the point that he made the ladder and was using the ransom money for his own good. I can also say there has to be a connection with this violet sharp lady who committed suicide when asked when being asked upon. But this is just my opinion and you don't have to agree and I'm not saying I'm correct at all. I mean, agree to disagree if you want. But this is just my thoughts, like I said. But like I mentioned before, this case was the crime of the century. And in a way, it still is. It's still being talked about. It's still being debated about. I mean, look at me uh, so many years later and I'm making a podcast episode about it. Um, Maybe it's because it goes unsolved and we don't have the answers. Or maybe it's because we can't stop, excuse me, stop ourselves from forming our own opinions or theories. Whatever it may be, whatever the case may be for you, the interest is there and it is very important. And we cannot forget this case for as long as we live. And we need to educate others on what happened as well. And maybe, even maybe, we can learn from our past mistakes and close our windows. I mean, I know if I have a kid, that window is closed and locked. But I also hope I'll have, like, cameras or, like, I don't know, the alarm. Um, Maybe we can learn from our mistakes for sure. Yes, I mean, who knows? Like, anyways, I hope you enjoyed this first episode as there's more to come. And I hope you learned something. I mean, I know I did. And I'm excited to, like, learn your feedback if you can comment on where this is. I'm not exactly sure how to use this platform as it's my first one. But I'm excited to learn more theories and learn other people's feedback because I'm not saying I'm right. I'm opening the discussion. I'm opening the door for more education and knowledge. But like I said, I hope you enjoyed this as there is way more to come. So toodles!